0: Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Randy Rhodes, a speech by Nancy Pelosi, Ring of Fire, and The New York Times.
1: Pelosi gave a, a fabulous speech that I really urge every to uh, watch on C-SPAN tonight if you didn't get to see it today. It's all of about 20-something minutes, but it's, it packs so much uh, interest and so much history and, and pride that she obviously felt that, you know, uh, as being the first woman Speaker of the House, but more so, you know, taking control of Congress for the first time in 12 long, horrible years so I, I mean, the the historical part and the uh, uh, respect that she pays to bipartisanship and the and the and the respect that she pays to Boner, uh, and she says she accepts the gavel and the spirit of bipartisanship, blah blah blah. When Hastert refused, refused as the outgoing Speaker of the House to give the incoming Speaker of the House the gavel, which is you know it's ceremonial, it's not law or anything, but it is it it, it would have shown the spirit with which the Republicans now approach being in the minority. And that spirit is, we hate you, we won't be seen with you, we're not going to give you the... You know, it was just, it it was heinous, it was ugly, it was nasty, it was, was, you know, sore loser, sour grapes kind of Republican crap. So if there was ever any doubt who they are and how they are, uh, let today speak for itself, and she was graceful in that moment but i 'll skip past the the beginning and i'll her her speech sort of had two parts to it. it had the you know uh the most amazing historical remembrance of everything that you know women have gone through in this country. She refers to breaking not the glass ceiling but the marble ceiling, and that now that the marble ceiling is broken, the sky is the limit I mean, it was just a very nice very well thought out speech, however. There is sort of a a segue when she leaves the thank you part of her speech and the historical, you know, uh, sort of let's put this in context. This is truly amazing. I can't believe I'm here. Oh, my God. So here is when she made the segue into discussing what we all have waited for at least a year so that we could vote and then two more months until the scheduled power shift, the swearing in of the new Congress, which was today. Um, And here's what she said about Iraq and the election itself.
2: The election of 2006 was a call to change, not merely to change the control of Congress, but for a new direction for our country. Nowhere were the American people more clear about the need for a new direction than in the war in Iraq. people rejected an open-ended obligation to a war without end. Shortly, President Bush will address the nation on the subject of Iraq. It is the responsibility of the President to articulate a new plan for Iraq that makes it clear to the Iraqis that they must defend their own streets and their own security. A plan that promotes stability in the region and a plan that allows us to responsibly redeploy our troops.
1: Now, I'll tell you, at this moment, even Republicans stood up for that. Some, not all, Hastert didn't stand. He was still winded, I guess, you know. Lots of capital steps, long walk. Let us work together to be the
2: Congress that rebuilds our military to meet the national security challenges of the 21st century. Let us be the Congress that strongly honors our responsibility to protect the American people from terrorism.
1: Okay, at this point, Hastert was trying to stand up. Because you have to stand whenever somebody says terrorism, you know. But he didn't. He couldn't. Winded, you know. Winded.
2: Let us be the com- Congress that never forgets our commitment to our veterans and our first responders, always honoring them as the heroes that they are.
1: The Democrats have now made clear that they will not debate any of the things that the Republicans had 11 years to see to, like an increase in the minimum wage. They've debated it to death. They said, "Mm, no, people don't need that. Uh, Like, you know, implementing the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission. They've had years to do that. And they said, "Mm, no, the American people don't need that. Like um ethics reform, they've had 12 years to see to ethics reform. And they said, mm, no, we like the lobbying system as it is. In fact, we're going to game it a little bit more. Yes, we like uh, private planes, and we like to have catered dinners, and we like the caterers, uh, you know, to be taken care of by the taxpayers. Uh, so they said, well, you know, you've had 11 years to do this. We don't see any need for debate, so we're just going to do an up-and-down vote on it, is what we're going to do. And so those things are not going to be debated. However, for the first time in 12 years, the Democrats can introduce legislation of their choosing. The Democrats can introduce amendments to bills that the Republicans will be allowed to introduce, unlike the way the Republicans treated the Democrats, who were not allowed to introduce anything. They could introduce it all they wanted, but nobody was ever going to vote on it. Nobody was ever going to... Debate it. No one was ever going to consider any amendment that any Democrat ever wanted to put on any bill. And that's the way it's been for 12 years. It has been the most frustrating time for me, for America, whether you knew it or not, for anybody who was looking to Congress to do the job of oversight, to do the job of the general welfare of the people, to do the job of protecting and defending uh, America against all enemies foreign and domestic we we have been powerless powerless and that day ended yesterday the day of being powerless today there was a power shift and now we have all the power
2: different parties, but we serve one country and our pride and our prayers are united behind our men and women in uniform. working together to protect the American people. And in this Congress, we must work together to build a future worthy of their sacrifice. And I thank my constituents in San Francisco and for the state of California for the privilege of representing them in Congress. St. Francis of Assisi is our city's patron saint. And his song of St. Francis is our city's anthem. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. Where there is darkness, may we bring light. Where there's hatred, may we bring love. Where is despair, may we bring hope. Hope, that is what America is about. And it is in that spirit that I serve in the Congress of the United States. I thank my colleagues. By electing me speaker, you have brought us closer to the ideal of equality that is America's heritage and America's hope. This is an historic moment. And I thank the leader for acknowledging it. Thank you, Mr. Boehner. It's an historic moment for the Congress. It's an historic moment for the women of America. a moment for which we have waited over 200 years (laughs) never losing faith we waited through the many years of struggle to achieve our rights but women weren't just waiting women were working never losing faith we worked to redeem the promise of America that all men and women are created equal. For our daughters and our granddaughters, today we have broken the marble ceiling. For our daughters and our granddaughters now, the sky is the limit. Anything is possible for them. The election of 2006 was a call to change, not merely to change the control of Congress, but for a new direction for our country. Nowhere were the American more people more clear about the need for a new direction than in the war in Iraq. The American people rejected an open-ended obligation to a war without end. Shortly, President Bush will address the nation on the subject of Iraq. It is the responsibility of the president to articulate a new plan for Iraq that makes it clear to the Iraqis that they must defend their own streets and their own security, a plan that makes, promotes stability in the region and a plan that allows us to responsibly redeploy our troops. (laughs) Let us work together to be the Congress that rebuilds our military to meet the national security challenges of the 21st century. Let us be the Congress that strongly honors our responsibility to protect the American people from terrorism. must be the Congress that never forgets our commitment to our veterans and our first responders, always honoring them as the heroes that they are. The American people also spoke clearly for a new direction here at home they desire a new vision a new America built on the values that have made, have made our country great our founders envisioned a new America driven by optimism opportunity and strength so confident were, that were they in the America that they were advancing that they put on the seal the great seal of the United States Novos Ordo Seclorum, a new order for the century. Centuries. They spoke of the centuries. They envisioned America as a just and good place, as a fair and efficient society, and as a source of opportunity for all. This vision has sustained us for over 200 years, and it accounts for what is best in our great nation, liberty, opportunity, and justice. Now, it is our responsibility to carry forth that vision of a new America into the 21st century, a new America that seizes the future and forges 21st century solutions through discovery, creativity, and innovation, sustaining our economic leadership, and ensuring our national security. A new America with a vibrant and strengthened middle class for whom college is affordable, health care is accessible, and retirement reliable. A new America that declares our energy independence, promotes domestic sources of renewable energy, and combats climate
1: change.
2: A new America that is strong, secure, and a respected leader among the community of nations. people told us they expected us to work together for fiscal responsibility with the highest ethical standard and with civility and bipartisanship. After years of historic deficits, this 110th Congress will commit itself to a higher standard. Pay as you go, no new deficit spending. will provide unlimited opportunity for future generations, not burden them with mountains of debt. In order to achieve our new America for the 21st century, we must return this house to the American people. So our first order of business is passing the toughest congressional ethics reform in history. Congress doesn't have 2 years or 200 days. Let us join together in the first 100 hours to make this the Congress the most honest and open Congress in history. 100 hours. 100 hours. This openness requires respect for every voice in the Congress. As Thomas Jefferson said, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. My colleagues elected me to be speaker of the House, the entire House. Respectful of the vision of our founders, the expectation of our people and the great challenges that we face, we have an obligation to reach beyond partisanship to work for all Americans. Let us stand together to move our country forward seeking common ground for the common good. We have made history. Now let us make progress for the American people. (laughs) May God bless our work, and may God bless America.
3: In the-
4: Joining us now is my uncle, Senator Edward Kennedy of Massachusetts, who's represented that state in the Senate for 43 years. He will become chairman of the Health, Education, Labor and Pension Committee. Teddy, thanks for joining us on Ring of Fire.
5: Yeah, glad to be on.
4: Now, I, I mentioned 43 years. Last time I checked, you were close to the world record for being in the Senate.
5: Well, uh, that, I'm not sure that that's the, the the record I really want to win at the uh, the end of my term in the United States Senate, but it is true that I've been around a, a long time. Senator Bob Byrd, as the uh, seniority on me in the Senate, I'm two in the United States Senate, I guess a third um, or so uh, historically, but... Uh, We're really excited about uh, this uh, agenda and about the new opportunities for leadership at the turn uh, of the the year. And that is what we're focused on. And we've got a good committee now. Senator Barack Obama is uh, on it. Senator Clinton is uh, on it. We have Sherrod Brown from Ohio who just got uh, elected. And we have Senator Sanders from uh, Vermont. So we've got a good, strong committee.
4: And the first... Item on the agenda is minimum wage. First, uh, well,
3: I,
5: our first item on our agenda is the minimum wage. It's been 10 years since we raised uh, the uh, minimum wage. People talk about the minimum wage as being uh, a displaced workers and being inflationary. The two best economies in Europe are uh, Great Britain and Ireland. Ireland is $9.76 an hour, and uh, in Great Britain, it's uh, almost $10 an hour. And they have brought in Great Britain. They brought uh, two and a half million children out of poverty, and uh, several million families uh, out of uh, poverty. And so it has uh, demonstrated once again that uh, increasing uh, the minimum wage is an issue of fairness and, and decency, and strengthens uh, our economy.
4: Minimum wage uh, for those of you who don't know what it is is five dollars and fifteen cents an hour. A minimum wage worker who works 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, makes $10,700, which is $6,000 below the poverty line. Is there anybody in the United States Senate that could survive on that, Teddy?
5: Well, um, no, and particularly since they have raised their salaries uh, by $32,000 per person by our Republican leadership uh, during the last uh, 10 years, raised their salaries $32,000 and refused to get it increase in the minimum wage this is a women's issue because the majority of people that get the minimum wage are women it's a children's issue because a great majority of those women have children. It's a civil rights issue because so many people men and women of color get entry-level jobs at the minimum wage so it's a family issue fairness issue and that's why it's so powerful and that's why it won in these as initiatives in five different states last uh, fall so American people understand fairness and they, they want us to do it now that we've got a change in in the leadership I think we'll get a job done
4: and will President Bush he won't veto it
5: well it's he supposed it so uh, I think that's still very open at this uh, present time, but I think we could probably override a veto with okay. the, uh, the Democrats. And then we're going to do the stem cell research.
4: Tell us about stem cell research. Well, this uh, this
5: issue is an issue really of hope and opportunity. I think for, for millions of families uh, that have a diabetic in their family or juvenile diabetic, for uh, families that are affected by Alzheimer's uh, disease, cancer as well. Um,
4: Multiple uh, sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis. 350,000 Americans have MS.
5: uh, All of these, uh, no one is guaranteeing that stem cell research is going to hold the key. But everything that uh, the the most gifted and talented scientists and researchers tell us is that the opportunities for progress in all of these uh, areas are really virtually unlimited, and we have really no substitute for it. This is a, an issue that the president vetoed in the last Congress, but it really says something. If we were able to empty the hospital beds in my state of Massachusetts from people with Alzheimer's, it would be two-thirds, two-thirds of all the nursing home beds in Massachusetts of people with Alzheimer's. This has a dramatic Impact in terms of families. It has a dramatic impact in terms of healthcare costs. This is uh, the right way to go, and this is a high priority. It's going to be our second major initiative out of our committee, and I'm uh, very hopeful we can uh, we'll we'll get this uh, signed into law.
1: Was it hundred hours to do six things? <laughs> Sounds like a lot of people I know. I need a hundred hours to do. But we're talking Congress here. So that's like the most impressive thing. They literally beat the 100-hour clock. <laughs> Incredible. That is amazing to me. The six for 06. That's what they were calling it. It was so catchy that I didn't know it. And I love the Democratic Party, <laughs> you know, parts of it. But honest to God, it was it was just such an amazing accomplishment. It was um, 87 hours it took them to actually make a difference in the lives of ordinary Americans. 87 stinking hours. What a difference 87 stinking hours makes. Just 87 little hours. It, it was, I'm a, okay, I'm in a cabaret mode. It's funny. But honest to God, can you believe that they passed their six? bills in 100-hour agenda in less than 100 hours, which shows you that, no jokes, it shows you that Congress can literally make a difference in the lives of students, in the lives of families, in the lives of the Treasury, in taxation, in interest rates for students and student loan. I mean, it's stunning. And yesterday, yesterday, they managed to pass a $14 billion Increase in taxes for big oil. <gasps> it Really, it's stunning. It's just absolutely stunning. Uh, they did $7.6 billion worth of tax breaks for big oil drillers that they rescinded, took that away, and they raised another $6.3 billion for the Treasury in royalties from companies that pump oil and gas in publicly owned waters. It's our stuff. In the Gulf of Mexico and off Alaska, ah, it, it, that that's amazing. And and what did they do? They uh they also did a um, they took the interest rates on student loans from six point eight percent, seven percent. That's like buying a shirt for ten dollars and then having to add seven percent, even though it's ten percent off. Do you know what I mean? It's it's they they reduced the uh, interest rate on student loans to three point four percent. Of course, it will happen in stages over five years. Uh, They made the government bargain directly, or they asked, listen, none of this has passed the Senate, and it certainly hasn't passed Bush's veto pen, but they passed this. Um, The government now, according to the House bill that has been passed, has to bargain directly with drug companies to reduce prices that people on Medicare pay for their drugs, they expanded uh, f- government-financed embryonic stem cell research. They raised the federal minimum wage from $5.15 to $7.25 uh, over 26 months. They have implemented all of the recommendations of the nine-eleven Commission, including full cargo inspections for all cargo coming into the ports and flying with you on passenger planes. I mean, that is amazing that all this stuff could have been done over the past 12 years, but exactly the opposite of these things were done over the past 12 years. See, the reason why they had to rescind $14 billion worth of tax breaks and subsidies for oil drillers was because that's what the Republican Congress passed and gave to oil drillers. That's what they gave in the last 12 years. They had to drop the interest rate on student loans from 6.8% because that's what the Republican Congress raised interest rates on our students. So they had a choice. Either be able to sign an agreement that you could borrow and and pay back at 7% interest or join the military. They also uh, had to rescind the um, Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit A portion of that bill that said, oh, and by the way, the government will not use the awesome power of volume, volume, volume to negotiate down drug prices, which is exactly what Canada does, which is why they're so much cheaper there. And we had our little old ladies and our little old men with their little walkers and their little larks and their little, uh, you know, uh, cars with their softball on top of it so they could find it in the Canadian parking lot crossing the border in droves to buy prescription drugs from Canada. Same drugs. Same pharmaceutical companies, but Canada negotiates down the price for their health care program. Our own VA does it. But if you were old, too bad for you, you got shut out of the big American experiment of democracy and being able to use the free market system, meaning supply and demand. Obviously, there's an awesome demand from our seniors. And the pharmaceutical companies were gaming that fact, by going to the government and getting something inserted into a bill that said, but you cannot negotiate with your volume, volume. volume. Can't use free market forces here. Same with the oil companies. Can't use free market forces here. We're going to drill in public waters. and We're not going to pay the public anything. So we're, we were shut out of the free market experience, you know. Uh, of course, the stem cells, it's too sciencey for Bush. And remember, this was the only time the president ever used his veto pen. Flew off of his vacation, not to save the drowning victims from Katrina. Not to, uh, nothing. He, he never came off of vacation. Not once ever did the president come off of his vacation. The only exception being to veto the stem cell research bill. Too sciency. Did come off of his vacation for Terry Schiavo. To say, she's alive. She can see. And, of course, we found out she's not alive and she can't see. And Frist ought to surrender his medical license for, A, participating in a diagnosis via videotape, and, B, declaring that she was alive. But Bush came off of his vacation exactly two times. Once for Terry Shiva and once to veto the stem cell research bill because he said it would result in human-animal hybrids. Human-animal hybrids. That's what he was afraid of and snowflake babies but of course nothing for in vitro fertilization you know nothing on that because that's a booming business but do you know how many embryos get destroyed and here we're talking about blastocysts okay here we're talking about cells in a petri dish this scares him that they're going to become you know human animal hybrids bush babies (laughs) Yes, I love the idol. Bush babies. They would become Bush babies and then audition in Seattle for American Idol. (laughs) So here is what Congress does at its best. Here is what Congress can do in the life of an ordinary American
6: He's is now a political strategist and author, David Sirota, one of our favorite progressive thinkers. David spent years as a staffer on Capitol Hill, and he was the chief strategist on the 2004 campaign of Brian Schweitzer, the first Democratic governor elected in Montana in 16 years. He's also the author of the bestseller, Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government, and How We Take It Back david's joining us today to talk about his article in the current issue of progressive populist called the people's party versus the money party david your piece is just so insightful and and really kind of an eye opener how about laying it out for us will you sure i
3: you know the the conventional wisdom is, is that politics is broken along straight party lines that we live in this country that's totally red and totally blue and that's reflected in the congress and what i learned in working on capitol hill for a number of years uh... is that what we really have is a people party and a money party and that doesn't necessarily break along republican and democratic lines and by that i mean that there are um... a number of democrats who join republicans when it comes to fundamental economic issues to side with basically big money interests um, we've seen a number of bills like that the the credit card industries bankruptcy bill was a bipartisan bill the bush energy bill was passed with votes from both sides uh, a number of these terrible trade deals that have hurt workers NAFTA China PNPR have been passed Yeah let me both.
6: let me ask you that you have people saying you know you always hear well we have to have bipartisanship we have to have move to the center uh, really isn't I think the way you characterize it in your piece in progressive populist is that's really just a way to prevent the debate over the idea that there is a very clear divide between people, party and the money party. I mean, is that, that kind of the way you see it?
3: That's, it, that's exactly right. And that and that the the push for bipartisanship for bipartisanship's sake is a way to justify uh, things that are often uh, really, really bad. Again, the bankruptcy bill, the energy bill, NAFTA, China, PNTR, these were all bipartisan bills, but they weren't necessarily good bills. The problem is, I would say, is that we have too much of that kind of bipartisanship uh, where the people party, the minority of lawmakers who really are for ordinary people, are, are run over.
6: Yeah, one thing I thought you did great, you did such a good job in this article. Everybody ought to read it because it's it's, uh, it's something we know intuitively, but until you lay it out the way you've done it, it it's not quite as obvious. Um, one thing you talk about, uh, you name names. I mean, the money party, for example, uh, you talk about uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, Rahm Emanuel. You talk about uh, Tosher from California. And and what I think it's interesting that people well you know there's some obvious things Joe Lieberman we all you know right. we don't we don't have to guess about a guy like Lieberman but give us an example I mean Ellen tosser for example we don't know a lot about her other than the fact that she calls herself a Democrat but when you look at uh, core economic issues she is terrible for the American middle class talk about that
3: she she has been she has been really bad and she actually made uh, she, she was a little honest about this. She recently told the New York Times that it's up to Democrats uh, to, to have a quote-unquote kabuki dance uh, with Uh, progressives and with ordinary people about what they say they're going to do and what they're actually going to do she has been particularly
6: Kabuki dance being nothing but a show we don't really mean it we have to say we're going to do this but we're really not going to do it
3: exactly it's all for show right and she has been absolutely awful when it comes to, to i think the most important issue which is trade uh... you know trade deals we have a choice in our trade policy of whether to have labor human rights, environmental, and wage standards in our trade deals, which make sure that Americans aren't forced to compete with slave labor. It has been a choice to not include those standards. Ellen Tauscher and the, the, some of the new Democrats, quote-unquote, that, that, uh, that she leads in the House, have provided the key votes to make sure trade deals pass without those basic standards and that has exacerbated uh you know wage depression in this country uh, job outsourcing the loss of pensions i mean here's well, the way to... da-
6: david when she runs in california does she run uh, under kind of a cloak of sheep's clothes i mean what how, how does she get past all that i mean she she's in a liberal state holding herself out as a democrat there and I guess it's kind of uh, the kind of the Feinstein analysis, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, w- w- the old trick is to basically is to basically talk about the the liberal issues that don't offend moneyed interests. So you can talk about a choice. You can talk about uh, social issues in general. You can talk even mostly about civil liberties. Although when you get into the privacy stuff, that sometimes gets yeah. crosswise with big money. But but basically, you purport to be a liberal. By sh- talking only about social issues and not about the core economic issues that might challenge, S-
6: similar to what the Republicans do. I mean, we, we, so in other words, you have Ellen Tauscher out there talking about uh, cultural ideas that that we as liberals might say, "Yeah, well, she sounds like us." But when she goes back into the to the confines of the corporate closed door, she's talking. All the time for moneyed interest.
3: Yeah, that's that, that's exactly right. And and you know it's it I guess in a certain sense it's uh it, it makes sense because at the end of the day a lawmaker or a candidate needs to raise money to run for office and the easiest way to raise money is to coddle the interests of people who have money
6: well i think i think for example in your article you you, you go after Rahm manuel a little, uh... a democrat from illinois but if you think about it he was the kind of the epicenter of money for the democrats in this last election in other words he, uh, he, he, he had to tie himself to big money to accomplish this because he was the architect of nafta and he has really and, and now he's going to take over the uh, ways and means committee and who knows what he's going to do for with corporate cash there that, that right. i mean
3: look th- this is this is a guy Right. Um, uh, granted, he did have a job to, to to raise money, but the whole concept. I mean, it's really the reason I wrote the article is to let us know who we can probably count on and who are going to be some trouble spots. Well, let's I mean, go what? down the
6: list. Let's go. To, you you talked about Schumer, and, and you were very very accurate when you talk about how he tried to, uh, you know, gut the post Enron col- corporate reforms because he gets all of his money from you know from those corporate interests. But that's right. You talked about Joe Lieberman. We know that story. But one one thing. That that you talked about I think it was very clear I mean it, the class-action bill we would not have had that class-action bill had it not been for Democrats like Baugh and Cantwell and Conrad and Feinstein and you know Landro all the people that we know are, are tied into a, a big corporate America we wouldn't have had that had they just done what they should have done for the people because all that was was a corporate l- relief bill every consumer group in America said it was bad for consumers but these democrats said well we're going to side up with corporate america
3: uh, absolutely and 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 you're absolutely right when you say that it was the democrats who provided the votes to pass that. I mean, I mean, and, and on that particular bill, I mean, that bill was so egregious. Oh, it's awful.
6: The, uh, it just it closes the door to people that, that are injured with products that have security issues. I mean, it's just just an awful bill. But you nevertheless, you had Obama, Reed, Rockefeller, Salazar. Yep. Yeah, Salazar, you had all all the all the regular suspects.
3: Where, and, and let me let me tell you why that happens. I mean, one thing that people need to know why that happens is many of the most important bills that deal with economic issues tend to be portrayed as technical issues in the media or only business issues. And so there has been this sort of of wink and nod that the high-profile issues that that many Democrats do the kabuki dance, but when it comes to economic issues, the devils are so in the details that I think a lot of lawmakers think that they can just get away with it.
7: After first attempting to deny the scale of last month's defeat, the apologists have settled on a storyline that sounds just like Marxist explanations for the failure of the Soviet Union. What happened, you see, was that the noble ideals of the Republican Revolution of 1994 were undermined by Washington's corrupting ways. And the recent defeat was a good thing because it will force a return to the true conservative path. But the truth is that the movement that took power in 1994 a movement that had little to do with true conservatism, was always based on a lie. The lie is right there in the Freedom Revolution, the book that Dick Armey, who'd just become the House Majority Leader, published in 1995. He declares that most government programs don't do anything to help American families with the needs of everyday life, and that very few American families would notice their disappearance. He goes on to assert that there's no reason we cannot, by the time our children come of age, reduce the federal government by half as a percentage of gross domestic product. Right. Somehow I think more than a few families would notice the disappearance of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and those three programs alone account for a majority of non-defense, non-interest spending. The truth is that the government delivers services and security that people want. Yes, there's some waste, just as there is in any large organization. But there are no big problems that are easy to cut. As long as people like Mr. Army, Newt Gingrich, and Tom DeLay were out of power, they could run on promises to eliminate vast government waste that existed only in the public's imagination. All those welfare queens driving Cadillacs. But once in power, they couldn't deliver. That's why government by the radical right has been an utter failure, even on its own terms. The government hasn't shrunk. Federal outlays other than interest payments and defense spending are a higher percentage of GDP today than they were when Mr. Army wrote his book. 14.8% in fiscal 2006, compared with 13.8% in fiscal 1995. Unable to make good on its promises, the GOP, like other failed revolutionary movements, tried to maintain its grip by exploiting its position of power. Friends were rewarded with patronage. Jack Abramoff began building his web of corruption almost as soon as Republicans took control. Adversaries were harassed with smear campaigns and witch hunts. Congress spent six years and many millions of dollars investigating a failed land deal, and Bill Clinton was impeached over a consensual affair. But it wasn't enough. Without 9-11, the Republican Revolution would probably have petered out quietly, with the loss of Congress in 2002 and the White House in 2004. Instead, the atrocity created a window of opportunity, four extra years gained by drowning out unfavorable news with terror alerts, starting a gratuitous war, and accusing Democrats of being weak on national security. Yet the Bush administration failed to convert this electoral success into progress on a right-wing domestic agenda. The collapse of the push to privatize Social Security recapitulated the failure of the Republican Revolution as a whole. Once the administration was forced to get specific about the details, it became obvious that private accounts couldn't produce something for nothing, and the public support vanished. In the end, Republicans didn't shrink the government, but they did degrade it. Baghdad and New Orleans are the arrival destinations of a movement based on deep contempt for governance. Is that the end for the radical right? Probably not. As a long-suffering civil servant once told me, bad policy ideas are like cockroaches. You can flush them down the toilet but they keep coming back. Many of the ideas that failed in the Bush years had previously failed in the Reagan years. So there's no reason to assume they're gone for good. Indeed it appears that loss of power and the ensuing lack of accountability is liberating right-wingers to lie yet again. Since last month's election, I've noticed a number of Social Security privatizers propounding the same free lunch falsehoods that the Bush administration had to abandon in the face of demands that it present an actual plan. Still, the Republican revolution of 1994 is over. And not a moment too soon.
6: back with political strategist and best-selling author David Sirota talking about the real divide between congress members and it is not between the democrats and the republicans david laid it out in his great article the people's party versus the money party that appears in the progressive populist we've been talking about the democratic congress members who consistently vote with big money interest usually against working americans well let's move the bankruptcy bill the bankruptcy bill would not have happened but for the democrats such as Bachus and ba and biden and conrad and you know the same Read the same suspects, I mean the same thing it never would have happened. It was awful for middle America. It was terrible for working people wasn 't it
3: terrible i mean here 's a bill who's, who that basically allows credit card industry uh, interest rate gouging that, that that helps credit card companies put you essentially into indentured servitude. The same bill has protections literally in the same bill, there are protections for those who have more than two million dollars yeah. of business debt yeah. To, to be better protected. And this could not have happened without scores of Democrats in both the House and Senate voting for it. I mean, look, there was a letter, if you can believe this, there was a letter and I cite it in this article that I think it was 20 or some Democrats wrote to the Speaker of the House saying, please pass this yeah, bill. Yeah. And I took a look at it and the people who had signed this letter to Hatcher, the Democrats, had taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from the credit card yeah. industry.
6: Yeah, the credit card industry, the banking industry, the financial Industry, they all got their money there, and they absolutely gave up the American people in order to get that money. Okay, CAFTA. We know CAFTA, if you look at the numbers, uh, 15 million jobs will be lost because of CAFTA, but you still had, and, 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 and again, it might have happened without these Democrats, but it probably would not have. Well, no,
3: I mean, that's actually, that, this is a very clear case. That bill would not have happened. Uh, it passed the House by uh, two votes. Oh, okay. And there yeah, were, I,
6: I was mixed up on the
3: other. Okay. Yeah, uh, there were fifteen Democrats. All who, right. Who support who supported that? Yeah, eight, in the 18,
6: House. eighteen Democrats on the bankruptcy. Eighteen on class action. Fifteen on CAFTA. Right.
3: That, that, that's what, Well, there were fifteen on CAFTA in the House, and yeah. it passed the House by two. That's right
6: okay so so there again this is a this is a bill where fifteen million jobs are going to be lost because of it, but you have, as you have just so cleverly pointed out here when when the same when these Democrats like Meeks, who voted for cAFTA or Jefferson who voted for CAFTA or 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 skelton when these Democrats are talking to the constituency, they're talking about cultural social issues, they sound like warm and fuzzy uh progressives, but they're not.
3: And, and, and I would say when they are called on the carpet about these issues, of uh, these economic issues, we get the talking points.
6: The the, the, the
3: sort of you know, capital. No, it's, it's it's about creating jobs and it's about exploiting American products. That was the big one on capital. Of course, what isn't said is that the Central American countries represent an economy the size of New Haven, Connecticut, a yeah. tiny economy, but they represent a huge pool of cheap labor, which right. is why big right. money pushed that so right.
6: hard. Okay, so who are the heroes? Who are the people that are looking out for what you call the people's party? Again, I, I I just think it's so clever, you're saying there is no distinction, Democrat or Republican. We've known that, but I think you've done more than that. You've gone ahead and followed the money on this. Follow the money for me. Who are the people that we can count on to look out for the people party issues?
3: Well, I think out of the 2006 election, the first people we can look at are the people who really ran on on this stuff uh, uh, and ignored what Washington told them to run on. So Sherrod Sh-
6: Shared- Brown.
3: Sherrod Brown, a perfect example. Consultants. The AT reported that consultants were telling him not to run on his long opposition to trade deals like NAFTA and China right. PNTR. He ran on that and he won in the most in Ohio. Most Ber- Ber- Bernie Sanders,
6: success. independent from Vermont. You got to love this guy. I mean, he, when everybody he is so willing to swim. In against the stream isn't he
3: he is he is I used to work for him when I first started on the hill a guy who who, uh, who who, was the only independent elected uh, uh, to the to the Congress uh, well I guess until Joe Lieberman yeah uh, uh, John Tester uh, Jim Webb is the guy who his first op-ed uh, as a US Senator uh, <laughs> said that he's going to make economic inequality his I know top C- issue. can
6: you imagine having the courage to do that it's, and, it's incredible yeah these
3: are not easy things to do yeah. I mean, it's not you know there's a lot of pressure on these senators not to, to talk about uh, okay
6: these. let's talk about some specifics uh, Byron Dorgan I mean here you got Dorgan that comes out he, he has, has. I've interviewed Dorgan. He has his great book called "Take This Job and Ship It." It's wonderful stuff. It's all about bringing jobs back to America and, and going after the energy industry and the pharmaceutical industry and making them be responsible.
3: That's right. And he's been he's been terrific on those issues. He had a great voting record. I mean, he's also led the fight for prescription drug importation, allowing Americans to buy cheaper prescription drugs. You know, obviously, uh, Russ Feingold has supported, you know, public financing of elections. He's tried to, uh, he's tried to crack down on lobbyist abuses. Uh, uh, Dick Durbin is now going to push another public financing bill. You know, and, and let me be clear, uh, uh, proposing publicly financed elections is, the, is one of the ultimate people party proposals. It basically says that candidates can run for office without having to rely on corporate money. Obviously, that's a threat to corporate Interests that are funding campaigns.
6: You know, I'm, I'm not saying it's just because Bobby Kennedy is my uh, <laughs> we co-host this show together. But if I look at the history of Ted Kennedy, he has always been a true a true believer for the people's party, as you put it, hasn't? He? Always, yeah. I mean, this it's is amazing. A guy... it, it always running against the, the the grain, isn't
3: it? Always. This is a guy who, when I worked on the Hill. Uh, for any, you know, I worked for Sanders, I worked for Dave Obey, another great guy. Anytime we needed an ally on any of these issues, we knew there were two people we could call. Paul Wellstone's office and Ted Kennedy's
6: office. Let's not forget George Miller, California. He's tr-
3: he is Talk terrific. about him quickly. He, he is, uh, he's been pushing the minimum wage, but, but, but even probably even more importantly, he's been pushing against these corporate pension rebuffs. You know, the companies, they, they will unilaterally just basically cut their work Pensions and it's good for shareholders, but it's terrible for workers. Miller has been a leader on this.
0: Well, it's it snuck right up on me, but today is actually the anniversary of the first episode of the best of the left podcast the very first thing to ever go into the feed was uh, last year january 29th 2006 and unfortunately if you weren't around back then and didn't save it uh, chances are you'll never hear those shows because they're not available anymore You know, I had to make space on the server, sorry. So, you know, no, please, there's no applause or or celebration necessary. You can all sit down. Uh, Simply, today I'm just going to tell part one of the story of my first day in D.C., which just happened to be this uh, past Saturday, the 27th, which just happened to be the largest anti-war rally of the year. Which is very exciting. And in this first part of the story, I'm actually not going to tell uh, anything that has really anything to do with the rally itself. Because it just so happens that I have never gotten more lost more times in any given day in my life as that day my first day trying to go from Northern Virginia, where I am now, to D.C. So, the story essentially goes like this. Uh, I was warned ahead of time about a particular interchange, my my first interaction with the famous Capital City Beltway, it's the freeway, it's I-495, it goes all the way around D.C., just in a big circle. And I was warned about this interchange, lovingly referred to as the mixing bowl. And let's just say that if you were to draw my course on a map, if you were to follow the path that I took, you would draw a beautiful and ever-increasingly intricate bow fit to adorn a very expensive gift of some kind. Uh, It it was simply ridiculous. Let your imagination run wild and that's essentially what my experience was uh, trying to get on the proper freeway uh, at that particular interchange. Uh, After that, not so bad. I made it to the metro. Uh, All things went well. I made it into the city. I made it to the rally. I didn't get lost. Uh, I... um, had a had a gale time. It made it even back to the metro, back to even the right station. I even made it back to the right station, and I thought to myself as I was exiting uh, the the trains there that this didn't quite look familiar. You know, I really started to think maybe I wasn't in the right place because I, I I remembered I had parked right at the the bottom level right by the ramp you know easy access I thought there's no way I'll be able to lose this but instead of uh, when I came off the train instead of going down a ramp to the bottom level I there was no ramp going down only stairs going up and so naturally I ended up on the top floor of the garage and knew well this isn't right. This, you know, this is where I'm supposed to be. I thought, well, I'll just take this other set of stairs straight down and find my car and be off. Well, I went all the way to the bottom of those stairs, and that didn't look familiar either. My car was nowhere to be seen. I li- I was. I walked around for probably about 10 minutes. Uh, it was very um, reminiscent of Seinfeld. You know, I, I didn't have. Uh, like a, a goldfish in a plastic bag, I was trying to carry around or anything, but uh, but it was bad. You know, I, I really thought um, I may never find my way home. And eventually, I, I'm not kidding. It, it was bad. I didn't I didn't find my car uh, uh, while wandering around in in that way. And so I thought to myself, well, nothing I've seen so far looks even vaguely familiar. So. I'll just go to the outside of the station and just walk in where I drove in because that'll look familiar. So I go to the outside of the station and the outside of the station doesn't look like the outside of the station either. And see, I'm positive I'm in the right place, but it doesn't look like the right place. So what I end up doing rather than walking through the station, which I've already tried to do and not been able to find my way through, Uh, I actually ended up walking around the block. You know, I'm talking like a quarter mile, half a mile, some ridiculously long ways to get back to the front of the terminal where I finally found my car. And I get in, and I just sink into the chair, and I think, oh, thank God, it's been... I don't know, eight, ten hours or so that I've been walking around D.C. I'm exhausted, but I'm back to the car. I'm safe. I know how to get to the freeway. Things will be okay now. And, of course, I can't find my way out of the parking garage. There, uh, there's one noticeably absent uh, thing in this parking garage, uh, exit signs. I saw plenty of "do not enter" signs where I had come in, but there were no exit signs. Uh, I essentially wandered aimlessly until I uh, I did finally come to an exit sign, which pointed to a locked gate. Couldn't get through there. Made, made a U-turn, and uh, you know, eventually, more wandering, found my way out. Thank God. I thought, okay, now I'm on the road. Now. I'm definitely on my way home. No troubles. <sighs> so I get on the road. I think I know where I'm going. And I probably should have mentioned earlier, my, my parents, being the uh, the brilliant, foresighted people that they are, thought that on on my grand uh, East Coast journey uh, into the unknown, uh, something I might need is a little portable GPS uh, directional uh, traffic computer thing and I think well it's cake you know the computer tells me where to go I can find the freeway no big deal and of course uh, at this point it's not the computer that makes the mistake it's obviously me I mean who, who else So instead of uh, going under the underpass and taking the loop around on the freeway, I just take the entrance before going under the overpass, etc. I go the wrong way on the freeway, I get off, I get on, I'm going the wrong way, I'm on a different freeway, I go over a body of water that I shouldn't be going over. So, you know, 30 minutes goes by or so. and. I finally make it to the freeway that I'm supposed to be on, the Beltway, the famous Beltway, uh, which is a circle, remember? And I'm, you know, if you if you divide it like a like a pie chart, I've probably got, you know, divided into like eight eight pieces. I've got like one piece to go if I went west, or you know, from where I am, obviously seven. Eighths to go if I go the wrong way so uh, what do you think of course I'm going the wrong way and uh, and by that time naturally the thing to do you get back off you get back on you go the right way no I have to admit I, I just went around I didn't I didn't get off I was done I was tired and I thought well what the hell it's a circle I'll just I'll just take it I, I rationalized it as a uh, Sightseeing, exploration. Although it was dark and uh, it looked like a freeway, so that was uh, about all I saw. And there were no more troubles after that. I made it home, and um, home, by the way, being the house of a very kind listener who was uh, letting me uh, use his spare bedroom here in northern northern Virginia as I as I looked for permanent housing in in D.C. proper, but. So that's part one. Part two will actually consist of uh, something that might interest uh, someone who wants to learn something about the rally. Since I was there, and uh, it's very possible that you weren't, uh, tune in for that. It was very exciting. I had a very good time, and and be sure not to miss it because there was a celebrity encounter, and uh, it, it gets it gets very exciting towards the end. So. Um, until uh, until the next show i um will, i'll continue house hunting.
1: on a shining sheet. they only make